Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is for the fresh wineskins. Father, we come to you and we admit our need of your wisdom. We admit our need of your strength. We admit our need for your comfort. Father, we recognize our limitations. We recognize our frustrations. We recognize our inabilities. And we see your strength, your power, your wisdom. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. And we thank you that you are, your grace and your mercy are wider than our wanderings and deeper than our doubts and frustrations. Father, you are moving and working despite how we understand this, despite the fact that we can't even see what you're doing. Father, you are working all things for your glory and for our good in us and through us. And we admit that when we walk through the valley, we do not understand and we grumble and we complain. And often like the Israelites, we look at your provisions and call them worthless. But Father, it is you who are working us to weaken us. Weaken us on our dependence on ourselves and on the things around us on the world and strengthening us to depend on Christ who has our only hope in life and death. And so often we need that because we try to pigeonhole Christ and to compartmentalize Christ. In reality, he needs to reorient everything in us and be the center of our lives in our work, in our studies, in our leisure, in our families, in our holidays, Father. Christ is central and reigns supreme. Father, work in your word as it is proclaimed in my weakness, but through the power of the Spirit that we may be transformed to know Christ better and that we would go and proclaim what Christ has done. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love. In Christ's name, precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As we go through the book of Mark, now Anna, you can leave it right there. And you can bail. Is that good? Excellent. As we read through the book of Mark, um, we, I, I've been, I have a computer program or an app on my phone that it, it reads 
the book of Mark to me when I'm getting ready in the morning. I'm listening to it, and I've listened to and read through the book of Mark many times at this point. And I think overall I'm realizing just how different the times of Mark were from our days today and just how unprecedented and powerful Jesus was, not only in the first century, but he retains that power and that majesty and that uniqueness in the 21st century. And, and we're in a section of Mark where it be, he becomes to head on with the religious status quo and there's opposition and there's angst and there's anger on a part of the powerful and the influential and the elites. And Jesus is now, we begin to see the crosshairs of the status quo are beginning to get uh, to center on Jesus. And the shadow of the cross is starting to form that Jesus is headed towards in the book of Mark and all of the Gospels. But Jesus, as he doesn't today, nor did he do in the first century, he doesn't fit into the religious categories that were thrust upon him. Jesus, earlier in this chapter 2, proclaimed the forgiveness of sin, and the Pharisees were appalled because only God forgives sins. And Jesus associated with sinners, and the Pharisees would never associate with the sinners, lest they themselves become unclean. And Jesus, much to the chagrin of John's disciples or, or the Pharisees, didn't require his, his disciples to fast, and that's what everyone else did. Jesus was unique. Jesus was powerful and Jesus was unprecedented. And today, Jesus remains unique and powerful and unprecedented. And therefore, it, we see in these clashes with the religious leaders in chapter 2 that ultimately in chapter 3, verse 6, will set his ultimate demise where they begin to plot his death and his undoing that he is, uh, um, the worldly forces are beginning to, uh, to mount on the horizon. And you can see the storm clouds and the thunderheads building and forming and the, the, the darkness that's loo looming on the horizon that will eventually engulf Christ. But I want you to see today as followers of Jesus and what a true disciple is, is that only those who pursue Christ can enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who pursue Christ can enter the kingdom of heaven. And how do we do that? Well, we'll look at three ways. I'm glad you asked. Uh, one, that we pursue joy in Christ. One, we pursue joy in Christ. Two, we pursue knowledge of Christ. We pursue knowledge of Christ. And three, we pursue service to Christ. And we'll see in three unique, very other culturally examples that Jesus gives about the uniqueness of Christ and how we must follow Christ and pursue him if we are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
So we start in the verses 18 and 19 that we are called as we enter in the kingdom of heaven through the gate of Christ alone that we are to pursue the joy that is only found in Christ. Notice verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I would hazard to guess that fasting is not something that the contemporary church is very familiar with. However, historically, fasting is something that is deeply ingrained in the fabric of worship, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For those of you who are maybe not familiar, fasting is the practice of abstaining from food. Now, you can also fast from things like liquid or sleep or digital content or any other type of activity. You fast from that in order to pursue um, spiritual things, spiritual exercises such as worship and repentance and supplication and prayer and meditation on Christ, we lay aside that time that we would consume food and we deny our physical desires to be able to teach our body to crave not the normal things of food, but to crave the things of God and the things of the kingdom. And we are physically teaching our body to desire the spiritual things. We say things, I will not eat for a period of time that I might devote myself to the Lord during that time. Or you say, I, am not sad, I will not satisfy my physical needs so that I may train my heart to focus on my need for the Lord. And fasting is a very biblical means to train our hearts to, to um, despise our sin and to crave the kingdom of God and to teach ourselves the sweetness of our Savior who satisfies the hunger of our soul. Now, in the Bible, and, and I had to cut this part out of my sermon, and it was very difficult to do because I did a lot of study on fasting throughout the Old Testament, but it made it to the cutting room floor, and I'm sorry, but there were fasts that were annual, there were seasonal, and there were spontaneous fasts, and there were even weekly fasts. And in the context of our text this morning, there were weekly fasts on Wednesday, or Monday and Thursday where the Pharisees and both the disciples of John were fasted. And they would do this, and in this time, the reason they fast was to publicly mourn for their sin and the Pharisees, for the delay of God, had yet to come to deliver them. And they believed that if everybody in Israel fasted and desired the, the Messiah, the Messiah was come. But And you can see fasting is a good thing because we're called to hate our sin and to love the Lord and to teach our hearts to desire Him. But as we'll see later on in the book of Mark, quickly these fasts became not a means of humbling ourselves, but they became means of building up the self-righteousness of the people. Uh, in Luke chapter 18, actually Chul referred to this last week, the Pharisees standing by himself, Pharisee meaning separated one, very rigorous 
biblical people, but so biblical that they miss the God of Scripture who loved them. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed out to God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. And then he says, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine when Gil prayed for the offering, he didn't turn around, thank you for not making me a sinner like Chris Williams. Amen? Amen. But just the, the audacity to pray such a thing. But he says, then he says, don't, uh, he didn't make me like a tax collector, but he says, he, he goes down his resume, I fast twice a week. Mondays and Thursdays, just like all the other righteous people do, I give tithes of all that I get. This fasting, rather than hating their sin and desiring the, the deliverance of God, they were puffing themselves up. And John's disciples fasted as well. They were fasting to be able to put their put to death their sin because they knew, as John said, the kingdom of God is near and it is coming. And they were genuinely saying, if the kingdom of God is coming, I need to be prepared. However, the disciples of Jesus weren't fasting. And the crowds came to Jesus and said, listen, you're doing a lot of really good things. Your teaching is incredible, but it just doesn't match up to what we know and what we understand in the status quo. Why aren't they fasting? Why aren't you teaching them? Because fasting is a wonderful thing. Notice what Jesus says, and it's first this metaphor he gives us that we have to unlock a little bit. We have to get out of the 21st century and go back to the first century. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer begs, begs the answer no. As long as you have the bridegroom with them, they continue to fast. They cannot fast. When Denise was pregnant with Anna, um, she purchased the book, some of you might be familiar, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And that would walk you through the weeks and the months of how the, Anna was growing in the womb and she's got ten toes and fingers and all this stuff and what uh, Denise could expect to happen in her body. And then after Anna was born, we didn't keep reading that book. Why? Because Anna was born and Denise wasn't expecting anymore. In fact, what we did is we took the book and we put it back on the shelf and we got the one right next to it called What to Expect in the First Year. We didn't go back until Andrew was born and we revisited that book, but we didn't do that um, because it was no longer, the, the, the hope and expectation of those nine months had been realized and we didn't continue to expect something that was already here. Likewise, Jesus, uh, the disciples of Jesus had no need to prepare their heart for the coming of God's kingdom through fasting because the, they were too busy celebrating the arrival of the kingdom. And this is where the, um, the metaphor Jesus uses of the wedding is that all the while as the bridegroom would come and they never knew when the bridegroom was coming to get his bride and the, to celebrate, um, the, and they were preparing, they were expecting, they were readying, readying their heart. And when he got there, as soon as you see in the distance, there was a, in maybe a night, there was a, a light of uh, candle torches and you could hear music and singing and the bridegroom was coming and all the attendants of the bride were there and they were excited and they were singing in the streets. They weren't 
wonder when he's going to come. And they were preparing. They were celebrating because the bridegroom had come. And Jesus is saying that the, my disciples don't fast because they're too busy celebrating that the bridegroom is here. This is the very thing that Hosea, that Jerry read to us this morning, that their joy was rooted in the fulfillment of God's promise both to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and through the, the mouth of Hosea. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Why has all of this happened? And I will betroth you to myself. God is coming to make things right and to take his bride, and God is coming. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And when this happens, what do you do? You celebrate. You're no longer mourning the dark night of sin, but you're celebrating that the bridegroom has come. God himself has come to his people. The kingdom was at hand. As Jesus declared in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, they were at hand, and this was a means and a time of celebration, not the weeping and the mourning of fasting. So this clash with the status quo in the religious time was not to clarify whether Christians should fast or not, because we're going to see the next verse in a moment. Yes, we need to be fasting, and we neglect fasting to our detriment. But when Jesus was there, it's showing that this text is not about fasting. This text is about the supremacy of Christ in all things. He is our soul's longing and delight, and he magnifies Christ in this. Christmas is coming. It's in three months, maybe. And some of you might know the days. And in those times, we light the Advent candle and we really work our way through the promises of Scripture, both in reading, in proclamation, but also in songs, the Christmas hymns that we sing. One of the two hymns in particular that I thought this week that really express the mourning and the sorrow of our sin and our the plight that we're in and the darkness of, of this reign of sin and the joy of the coming is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, if I had a better voice, I would love to sing it, these words, these, uh, and it's almost a dirge. It's slow and steady and heavy and deep. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God with us. We have this promise that God will be with us, but right now, uh, and we are captive and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until what? The Son of God appears. What's the first verse in Mark chapter 1? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The story of his coming. Rejoice, rejoice, have joy, have joy. Emmanuel, God with us shall come to you, O Israel. When we sing this song, we are putting ourselves in the, the boots of Israel that's mourning and wailing and the sorrow for the sickness of sin that has 
perverted our, and poisoned our world, and we're waiting for the coming Messiah, and actually not just the Messiah, but God himself who will dwell with us. So if you feel the mourning and the heaviness of sin, what do you think the next song that, we're gonna, that I'm going to look at for you aficionados with that? Um, no, it's backwards. It's joy to the world up there, Anna. All right, I know it, though. Thankfully, I've sung it for 40 years. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And then the next stanza says this, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Those very things that we're mourning for in Come, O Come, Emmanuel, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Bum, bum. And I would repeat it three times, but uh, I've already done enough damage. But ultimately, we see that without Christ and without the kingdom, there's mourning and sorrow for our sin and heaviness. We feel the weight of sin, and Christ has come. And the reason Jesus' disciples did not fast and mourn and weep and wail is because they were too busy celebrating the arrival of the kingdom, and they were overflowing with joy, for God had come to his people. Ocean Park, you cannot see Jesus for who he is, the long-awaited, anointed Son of God who has come to pay the ransom price for the sins of many and, and put on a dour face and a sour countenance. Ocean Park, the arrival of the kingdom of God infuses us with joy, sheer joy. Joy that the reign of sin is over. Joy that the power of sin is defeated. Joy that the penalty of sin has been paid. Joy that God dwells with his people. And the presence of Jesus, sorrow and lament of fasting is not just simply inappropriate, but it is impossible. God has come to his people and in his presence there is incredible joy. The very thing that the psalmist in Psalm 16 said, you make to known to me the paths of life. What? In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the presence of Christ brings joy? And I know just a few years ago, some of the children that I was, um, the students that I was the youth pastor of at Sovereign Grace have married and they're, they're starting to have kids, and it's, it's I'm getting old. But I remember going to a, a particular wedding of a, a dear uh, young girl that had grown up, and, and we went and we celebrated under the, sh the, the shade of an oak tree, and just seeing the creation of this new family, and all in the presence, uh, we sang, and we laughed, and we ate good food, and we uh, we hugged and we kissed and it was just a time of sheer joy. Why? Because a new family was being created. We didn't have time to sorrow and lament because we were too busy celebrating. Sorrow lamenting will have its day, but we were celebrating this new creation that God had created, this family. And the same thing is when we are the disciples of Christ overflowed with joy because in Christ, God had come to his people. Ocean Park, only those who pursue Christ can enter in, and I'll insert here the joy of the kingdom of God. 
But not only in verses 18 and 19 are we called to pursue the joy that's in Christ, but in verse 19 or verse 20, we're called to pursue the knowledge of Christ. Fasting is an expression of our hunger for God that finds its ultimate satisfaction in the presence of the bridegroom over the amusements of the world. As followers of Jesus, we must fast at this present time. Fasting is very appropriate. Why? Because our bridegroom is not in our midst. Our bridegroom has been snatched away from us, has been taken away from us at the cross and at the ascension. But we know the promise of God. He is returning. And oh, how we say Maranatha. Oh, Lord, return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The final words of the book of Revelation. And often when we feel the weight of sin, when we watch the brokenness and the destruction on the news, we say through groaning and weeping, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The thorns and thistles, the, the sorrows of this world are too much. I need the presence of the bridegroom to bring joy and to make things right. Notice verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. Again, we see the storm clouds are beginning to build on the horizon, and darkness is coming in the middle of the day, and Jesus, the, the religious leaders, are beginning to hone in on him, and the forces of evil and the wickedness of the heart are attempting to destroy the Son of God. And as we walk through the book of Mark, that tension grows and builds, and you can feel that angst, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. And some of you may have never read the book of Mark and don't know the story of Jesus, but what happens, and you're saying, no, that's not supposed to happen. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The prince that is sent from a faraway kingdom is not supposed to die. He's supposed to deliver us. But as the opposition will come and seek to destroy the anointed Son of God, the promise of the joy will come after the bridegroom is horrifically interrupted in the midst of the celebration. And then in that time, as we wait for our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to return to his people, we mourn and we weep, we fast and we pray. Ocean Park, fasting expresses our longing for Christ and all that God is for us in Him. We recognize the significance of who Christ is and therefore we long to be satisfied in Him alone, no longer desiring the, 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 the crumb, crumbs of this world, but often in our desire for Christ and His return, we gorge ourselves in the good things of this world and the sinful things of this world, and that dulls our hunger for Christ. John Piper, in his book, Hunger for God, articulates uh, the problem that we have. If you don't feel a strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied by that glory. 
The reason is, it's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things, that there is no room for the great things. And he says, God did not create us for this. God has created us to be satisfied in the succulence of who he is. It is only in Christ can we be satisfied. I often cook out and barbecue, and often I ruin my meal because I'm constantly tasting the barbecue that I'm cooking. And then when it comes to be able to eat the meat and the sides and all to enjoy the fellowship of my family, it's not the same because I've already filled my belly. I still make room, though, clearly. Ocean, yes, thanks, son. Thanks for the courtesy laugh. Only when we tasted the joy of the Lord who came in Christ and has promised to return will we experience the joy that awakens a hunger for Christ's supremacy in all things. Ocean Park, let me ask you this. You may know that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you hunger to know him? You may know that Jesus is returning to bring his people to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Do you hunger for his return? Do you long for that day? Why or why not? Let me ask you, what is dulling your hunger for Christ and for his return? Is your consumption of social media causing your heart to hunger for Christ or to hunger for the approval of your peers? Is your consumption of 24-hour news channels causing your heart to hunger for Christ? Or you're feeding your hunger to prove the superiority of your politics and the stupidity of your opponents? Is your consumption of sports causing you to hunger for Christ or feeding your hunger for idol worship? Is your consumptions of movies and television and streaming services causing you to hunger for Christ? Or is it feeding your carnal desires for vain pursuits? Is your consumption of food teaching your palate to appreciate the spiritual feast of Christ? Or you're gorging your belly so you don't have to remember the bitter restlessness of your soul? Is your consumption of physical pleasures causing you to hunger for Christ or to slowly atrophy your spiritual appetites? Is your career and your families and your hobbies stirring your hunger for the glory of Christ or is it feeding your prideful love of self? Ocean Park, do you miss the bridegroom? Do you wait for that day when Jesus is returning with a shout, with, with the angels, with the, those who have gone before us to return to make this world anew and afresh, a new kingdom where God's glory overwhelms us? And we dance and sing and we have new tastes and new sounds and new appetites that magnify the glory of our good and gracious God. Do you long for that day? Or do you long for the processed sugars and the trans fat of the world's pleasure and wonder why you have no appetite for the richness of joy that is found in Christ? Piper then continues, this is the almost universal absence of regular fasting for the Lord's return is a witness to our satisfaction with the presence of the world and the absence of Christ. See, often 
we don't hunger for Christ. We throw him a, we eat a little piece of bread and we throw him a crumbs on a Sunday morning, but we never return to that. And often we're lucky if we even think about the Lord during the worship service because we have are thinking about so many other things, good things and bad things, but we never stop to meditate on Christ. The more that we fill ourselves with the gristle of this world, our palate slowly dulls to the exquisite, exquisite delicacy that is found only in the joy of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must teach our heart to hunger for Christ that we may experience the everlasting, eternal, all-satisfying, indestructible joy that is only found in knowing Christ. Let me remind you, Ocean Park, only those who pursue Christ can enter into the joy of the kingdom. Therefore, we pursue the joy that's found in Christ. We pursue the knowledge of knowing Christ. And then finally, we pursue service to Christ. In verse 21 and 22, Jesus finishes this encounter in a bit of an abrupt way. We don't see the, the scuttlebutt and the, and the talking and the whispering amongst the people. We just hear these two things and he leaves it there. And to be honest, for many, many years I've struggled. I have no idea what these things mean. I don't know what a wineskin is and I don't do any sewing. But Jesus is giving us two metaphors to powerfully illustrate the power of the new age of the kingdom of God that has come in Christ. Notice verse 21 and 22, the patches and the wineskins. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And if he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. Now I had to look it up, I did research because I've never sewed in my life, but I know this, you cannot mix old fabric and new fabric. Why? Because as the new fabric shrinks, it's going to pull the stitches, and the old fabric is, is um, very soft, and it's not firm anymore, and what it does is it rips. It cannot hold the power of the new fabric as it shrinks. And what you're left with is a much larger, much more unseemly hole in your garment. In verse 22, he continues, No one puts on new wine, an old wine skin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skin. You can't store new wine in old wine skins. And again, I looked up, uh, why? As new wine is fermenting, that pressure begins to build. And if you put it in an old leather wineskin, and as leather gets older in a wineskin, it begins to, the wineskins begin to shrivel and get stiff. And if you're not using new fresh wine, or I'm sorry, new fresh leather, um, it won't be able to stretch as that wine ferments. And what is it going to do? It's going to burst and it's going to waste all that wine. And all you're going to have on your hands is an old wineskin that is broken and the wine on the ground is spoiled and you go thirsty. I tried to think and I racked my brain and I don't know if I pulled it off, but I tried to think of a modern day equivalent to try to be able to understand the old cannot, does not have 
the ability to understand the, with the power of the new. And I came up with three examples. You can't go deep sea fishing with a child Spider-Man freshwater fishing pole. When Andrew was a little boy, he had a little Spider-Man fishing pole and he would fish and catch some brim in the retention pond down the road with his buddy Connor. Uh, but you can't take that little fishing pole and go try to catch a swordfish. Why? Well, the swordfish won't bite. And two, if they do, they'll just rip off, rip it apart and the, the line will snap and the fish pole will break quickly. You can't restrain a pit bull with a poodle's collar. Why? Pit bulls are much larger and stronger than we pit bulls, Lottie and Corey, uh, Jane's two little poodles. You can't haul a construction trailer with a two-door hatchback coupe. You can't do it because a four-cylinder is not going to be able to pull the power of a trailer. You can't do that. And Jesus is warning his listeners that the religious status quo cannot handle the all-surpassing power of the kingdom of God. This new age that is being inaugurated in Christ is nothing that the world has ever seen. And this is the very thing we're going to see in Mark. The crowds are marveling time and time again, and they're saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus is teaching with power and authority. Jesus is commanding the demons to flee, and immediately they flee. Jesus touches the lepers, and they become clean. Jesus goes to the blind and to the lame, and he heals them. Jesus speaks to the wind and the wave, and it becomes calm and silence. You cannot take the power of the Almighty God in Christ and neatly compartmentalize it into your lives of the people in the first century, nor can you attach or add on or append the lives of people in the 21st century. Why? Jesus must completely reorient your lives or all you'll be left with is a broken and tattered and torn wineskins and garments. You must become a new garment. You must become a new container or you cannot follow Jesus. Bishop Mark, we have very busy lives. How you been doing? Oh, great, I'm busy. Busyness is the mark of success or something. We're busy at work and school and sports and reading and family and food and shopping and music and friends. And what we try to do is try to take 36 hours, shove it into 24, and then we're going to squeeze Jesus in there. We're going to try to take this new wine that is powerful, and it's more in Mark chapter 2. It's fixing to get more fermented, more stronger. That fabric is moving and stretching and pulling. And we try to squeeze Jesus into our schedules and routine. I'll give you an hour. I won't give you two, because Sunday school and worship, that's a big deal. You have to be very spiritual for that. Wednesday nights, don't even think about it. But what we do is we have it completely backwards. Jesus is to be the center of our lives, and then we build our work and our school and our reading and our sports and our activities around Jesus, not this is what I love, and then Jesus is over here. I'm going to get a little sprinkle of Jesus in there. C.S. Lewis, and I, I usually quote this quarterly, I think. It would seem, and it's, it's such a good quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, 
but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures and fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Oceanbark, we will waste our lives if we treat Jesus like just another interest in our lives. He is not a garnish on the plate. He is the entree in the middle that is the, our satisfaction, our desire, and what sustains us. If we attempt to incorporate into him our self-centered status quo, we'll be left with the shame of tattered and torn garments and the useless ruptured wineskins of a life that squandered the finest of wines. We must prepare our hearts to serve the king whose power is like none other. His power commands the wind and the rains and the angels in heaven. His power heals the sick and raises the dead. His power rebukes the fevers and unclean spirits. His power spoke creation into existence and he's created new lives in the, in, into his people. How could we have the audacity to approach him with a laissez-faire attitude and the laxity of the status quo? I'll get to you if I have time, if I don't have anything else that's more important. How can we do that to the almighty king of the universe? To follow Jesus, you must reorient, every, reorient everything in your life as service to the almighty king because only those who pursue Christ, the joy in him, the knowledge in him, the service to him can enter the kingdom of God. I want to close with three questions. The first question is this. Do, uh, there it goes. Anna, go back one for me. Do you rejoice in Christ's coming? Question mark, do you rejoice in his coming because only in, in him can you be delivered from the bondage of sin in your life, in your bodies, in your minds, in your relationships, in our government, in our world, in our environment? And only in Christ can you have peace with God. Do you rejoice in the coming of Christ like a wedding party celebrates the arrival of the bridegroom? Does it cause your heart to swell knowing that the dark night of sin is over and that the sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his wing and he is leading us out of the bondage of sin and death? The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and cover up. Then in his joy... He goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. Ocean Park, pray that the Lord would cause you to always rejoice at the coming of Christ at his birth because to pay the ransom for our sin that you may have peace with God and the joy knowing that he's coming again. Do you hunger for Christ's return? Do you long for his presence? Do you hunger to understand his teaching, to celebrate his work, to proclaim the power of his salvation? Are you deliberately working to sharpen your appetite for, for Christ by um, dulling yourselves by, from the crumbs of this world? Yesterday I spoke with uh, Dr. Scott Sunquist, the president of Gordon-Conwell. He was at Fresh New Student Orientation. And he said this, unless we are rigidly legalistic, 
with our routines and our bodies and our minds in this way. I wake up every morning and I know that I can't do anything else but read God's word because my mind is so quick to wander that I know that I have to do this. I have to read God's word. I have to pray because I am so weak and I am so uh, frail. Unless we are rigid in pursuing Christ and denying ourselves and saying, that might be a really good story to watch. That might be incredible CGI. That might be an amazing storyline. And I might feel really stupid in the office because I haven't been watching those things. But I am pursuing Christ. Christ is more valuable than those things, those crumbs at the table that fill me up so I don't desire Christ. Unless we deny ourselves of those things and say Christ is more valuable, we will become fat on this world and our sense of Christ will begin to gloat dim. We need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 42 that we sing often, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You alone are my heart's desire. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And are you preparing yourself to serve Christ? Are you attempting to incorporate Christ into your life and reorient your li- or reorient your life to receive the all-surpassing power of Jesus Christ? Are you trying to reconcile your service of God with your love for the world? Are you trying to name the name of Jesus but live and and treasure that which is ungodly? Are you trying to live with the pleasures of of the sin of this world, yet be a follower of the crucified Jesus and get the benefits of that, but also enjoy the pleasures of this world? Jesus tells us in that no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one or love the other. Or, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, and that money is the word mammon, which means the things of this world. Ocean Park, pray that the Lord would cause your hearts to release the moorings that hold you to the loyalties and the pleasures and the desires of this world, and that you would commit yourselves to being a genuine disciple of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in you and through you in your pursuit of Christ? Are you pursuing the joy of Christ the King? Are you pursuing the knowledge of Christ the King? Are you pursuing service of Christ the King alone? Because only those who pursue Christ can enter in the joy of his kingdom. May you hear the voice of Jesus say, follow me. And you will leave the nets behind and you will leave the tax booth behind and follow Jesus.